Welcome to Pontifax. I'm Fry. And I'm Brie, ranking all of the popes from Peter to Francis. And this is episode 16, Pope Victor I. Are you ready for this? I don't think so. Like, I have no idea what's going to happen. You have been hyping this guy up for three, four days now. Mm -hmm, because this is kind of, I guess this is a little bit spoilery, but I'm going to say we're going to jump into some interesting people for the next couple of episodes and he kind of kicks that off a little bit and he's definitely gonna be a couple of firsts for us he's definitely gonna be a little bit unusual so yeah i guess we should jump right in because i have lots to tell you about this man let's get on victor the first here pope victor the first was not born in rome no Nope, he was not born in Greece. Okay. He was born in the Roman province of Africa. That's right. Africa's a continent. Uh, well, we will get into this, but for now. The whole continent. Yes, Africa is a continent. And when I posted that there was a pope, or there, there were three Roman African popes in the early church, Victor, Miletides, and Gelasius, uh, someone called me out on it and they're like so you wrote all of the countries and then africa but i will explain why let's do this now okay first african pope this is the perfect time because we're probably gonna have to hit on it every time this is the roman province of africa proconsularis which is definitely definitely not the whole continent of africa as we would think of it today it is for the time being what Romans would consider Africa. So it's Africa. This is a mostly small sliver on the top eastern coast of the continent of Africa. Is uh, Egypt up in there or is Egypt its own thing? Egypt is its, its own province. Okay. So in the Roman world, Egypt was its own province and Africa Proconsularis was Tunisia, Algeria, and Libya. That kind of region, not the whole continent, we're not referring to it as a country, it is a province of Africa. Yes, he is the first African Pope. It is correct and accurate in the format in which it's given. Now that we've said that, we're learning today. I knew as soon as I posted it to and got the response that I would have to explain this many times. There are some speculations about where in this African province he was born, but most sources agree that it would have been in Leptis Magna, in the region of Tripolitania in Libya. And this is a place, Leptis Magna has its own crazy incredible history, and I'm not going to go into it. So if you do want to hear more about it, you should check out the Wonders of the World podcast episode on Leptis Magna which also features Rob and Jamie from Totalis Rankium, so bonus. Check it out. So, born in Africa, Leptis Magna, to a father called Felix. At some point, he enters the church, he comes to Rome, and he becomes Pope. And that is what we know about his early life. He traveled at some point, and then he was Pope. Yep, he's a Pope now. It turns out it's a pretty good time to be Pope. Like we mentioned last week, Emperor Commodus was fairly tolerant towards Christians, 
So not many persecutions are happening, particularly in Rome itself. And we didn't really talk about why Commodus was not into persecuting the Christians, but one of the reasons that we speculate that he was tolerant was that his mistress, Marcia, who played a very large and influential role on his life and then his death, she was a Christian. Or at least she was likely a Christian. Maybe. One of our sources, Hippolytus, tells us that Marcia was raised by, or at least she might have been taught in the care of a well-known eunuch presbyter called Hyacinthus, and refers to her very often as Philotheos, which is God-loving. Christian mistress. Cassius Dio, the famous historian, tells us that she greatly favored Christians and rendered them with many kindnesses inasmuch as she could do anything with Commodus. Beyond that, from what we can tell, she might have actually been close with or had good relations with Pope Victor, too. Uh, relations, like, air quotes, or? Uh, That is not implied in the general sources, but, um, we may get onto that a little bit later. There is actually a fructus prohibitum for this episode. Yes, okay. Thumbs up. Besides the implication of relations that Pope Victor might have, and really it's not with Marcia, but the reason that we know that they may have had a good friendship, if you will, is that Marcia summons Pope Victor to an imperial audience with the Emperor Commodus and requests of him a list of Christians who had previously been condemned to forced labor in the mines, like Pope Clement. Yeah. But this time, they're in Sardinia. And remember, when you have been condemned to work in the mines, that's not actually a work sentence that is condemning someone to work themselves to death rather quickly. So the Christians that are over there are in a fairly dire situation. And she's going, hey, I need a list of who those people are. And he provides a list for her, and Marcia is able to convince Commodus to pardon these people and bring them back. She had a lot of influence here. Apparently, she was like, hey, hey, they weren't that bad, were they? Hey. And then she will try to poison him later and be totally part of his assassination. But that's a whole other story, so. Nice. Get things done. And she did. Ooh, did she ever? Because then they send the presbyter that raised her and taught her, Hyacinthus, to Sardinia with the release papers, and the condemned Christians are brought back home. And this is important not only for, like, good grace of the Christians at this time, but also because one of the prisoners who is freed from the mines is called Calixtus. And he's going to be a future pope very soon, and he will play a very strong role in the next episode, and definitely one of the most interesting popes. Look forward to him. He is now alive because of Marcia and Victor, so... Good job, guys. They did good. Beyond just the imperial household, the attitude of toleration is spreading, too, across the empire, because Irenaeus also mentions that at this time... There are Christians that are actually employed in the court and in imperial offices everywhere, 
he mentions one as an example, someone called Prosenes, who was a freedman, highly ranked in the court and a Christian. Those things don't usually go hand in hand. No. And the other reason that Prosenes gets referenced often is because we actually have his tomb preserved, which reads, Marcus Aurelius Prosenes, welcomed before God. That's kind of cool. This Christian man who actually did well for himself in court, we, we have an example of him and we have his tomb. So it's a great time for Christians. It means that their religion is being accepted at the highest levels of imperial life. It's going to start attracting wealthy, noble, and influential figures, and conversions are going to go up again. Good. And apparently, in the earlier years of his rule, Septimius Severus, the next emperor, would carry on the tradition of the Christian tolerance. And he also had Christian administrators and would even have a Christian wet nurse for his son, the future Caracalla, and presumably Geta, his other son. It is actually said in Tertullian that these boys were raised on Christian milk, but, uh... Does Christian milk taste different than secular milk? Well, I mean, if Caracalla is anything to go on, it makes you nuts, so... Don't have that Christian milk. And it also makes you murder your brother, so... No! <laughs> Unfortunately, the Christian tolerance is not going to last all the way through Severus's rule. And we're going to cover that in more detail in the next Pope. We just mentioned this because he becomes emperor while Victor is still Pope after Commodus dies. What did Victor do as Pope besides free some Christians from the mine? Liber Pontificalis stuff first because it's fast and short and perfunctory and usually not true. He held two ordinations in December for a total of four priests, seven deacons, and twelve bishops. Now, it's also said that he added acolytes to the clergy, which as far as I can discern, and this was a little bit difficult, uh, seeing as an acolyte seems to be a catch-all term for everything that is subdeacon. You know, they do the assistance to the deacons, lighting candles and stuff. So like an altar server. It, it seems to be what they originally were going to call all the altar servers. He may or may not have added that role to the church. Probably not. It is also said that he passed an ordination that would allow anyone who wished to be baptized to be able to do so anywhere in a time of need, whether in a river or in the sea or a spring or in a march, if only they first profess their Christian faith. So in times of expedience, this type of baptism would be considered full and valid. You know, if you're on the run... All natural bodies of water, though. You can't go in a bathhouse and go, I'm Christian, and jump in the bath. Exactly. But he is the first person to say that if you're in a pinch and you're not at the church, you can do it at these natural bodies of water. This one is clearly the retroactive edition of the Liber Pontificalis going, look, he did one of the major things. However, we actually do have a major contribution to talk about that is administrative and good. In Deverus Illustrivius, Jerome tells us that Victor was the first pope, actually the first Christian writer, period, to write his theological liturgy in Latin. This was a big step for the church. Before this point, everything in the church 
Roman mass, theology, liturgy, any type of religious discourse has been done in Greek. And this is the effective first appearance of Latin showing up in the church. Wow. I mean, the treatises that Victor were writing were very small. Uh, Jerome refers to them as opusculas. And we don't have any of them left to actually judge from. But it's very clear that over time, Latin is going to become the dominant and exclusive language of the church. And all masses will be in Latin by the end of the 4th century. So this is this is a big one. And it's not just in the Liber Pontificalis. It actually has some weight. He actually wrote in Latin. Pretty big deal. Yeah, that's a big one. They still say some masses in Latin. Yeah, it's still the dominant language of the church. So this is a lasting contribution. Number one for lasting things about Victor. But now we have to get into the bigger part of Victor's papacy, which is his role in something very specific. Can you guess what it is? Uh, I bet it's Easter. It's Easter! Damn. Do I need to recap for you what the controversy is, or at this point, am I just blue in the face? Uh, it's, uh, Sunday. Sunday, Sunday. Exactly. Sunday, Sunday, Sunday. Quarter decimans are not Sunday, Sunday, Sunday. They have been fighting this issue for six papacies now. Mm-hmm. No one wants to change their position on this, and they've been holding firm, but... As we've discussed in our previous popes, no one is willing to go to excommunication or split the church on this issue. It's causing divisions, it's causing tensions, but both sides of the church want to stick together, and they want to not rock the boat. They want to carry on with their individual traditions, but stay together as a whole. Well, Victor rocks up and decides that he's going to figure this out once and for all and make a decision and call it a done deal. In his eyes, it's time for uniformity, and more importantly, conformity. He writes to one of the head bishops over at the Eastern Church, Polycrates of Ephesus, and has him convene a synod for all the bishops in the East and the quote-unquote Asian provinces to come together in the synod and discuss this issue. And then he calls on his Italian bishops to do the same and have their own synod and discuss this issue. Now, these are the earliest synods that we have any actual record of in the church. So marking moment in history number two. We're going to break this down. On the Western side, multiple synods are happening. Are They're held and presided over by many major bishops. And Eusebius gives us a list for them all. In Palestine, we have Theophilus of Caesarea and Narcissus of Jerusalem. In Pontus, we have a synod held over by Palmus. In Gaul, by our friend Irenaeus, the new bishop of Leon. In Corinth, by somebody called Bacillus. In Mesopotamia, by Dad Bishop Guy, who has no name. Dad Bishop. He doesn't get a name. Can you guess the outcome? Of these synod discussions? Oh, God, I hope it's that they go to Sunday. The Western churches unanimously confirm their Sunday tradition. According to Eusebius, all the letters from the Western bishops reject the quartodecimanism and declare that on the Lord's Day, only the mystery of the resurrection of the Lord from the dead was accomplished, 
and that on that day only we keep the close of the Paschal fast. And the Eastern churches wrote that the large majority of the bishops in the area were holding firm to the quarter-deciman ways. So they don't agree. However, because we've gotten so much of the Catholic side, I actually have Eusebius, who recounts Polycrates' letter to Victor, stating their justification. So we're going to get their perspective for a change. This is what he has to say on the issue. We observe the exact day, neither adding nor taking away. For in Asia also great lights have fallen asleep, which shall rise again on the day of our Lord's coming, when he shall come from the glory of heaven and shall seek out the saints. Among these are Philip of the Twelve Apostles, who fell asleep in Hierapolis, and his two aged virgin daughters, and another daughter who lived in the Holy Spirit and now rests at Ephesus. And moreover, John, who was both a witness and a teacher, who reclined upon the bosom of our Lord, and being a priest, wore the sacerdotal plate. He fell asleep at Ephesus. And Polycarp of Smyrna, who was bishop and martyr, and Thrasius, bishop and martyr, from Eumania, who fell asleep in Smyrna. Why need I mention the bishop and martyr Sagarius, who fell asleep in Laodicea, or the blepid pepper? The blepid plepid. The blepid plepid. Or the blessed Papyrus, or Melito the eunuch, who lived altogether in the Holy Spirit, and who lies in Sardis, waiting the episcopate of heaven. And when shall he rise from the dead? All these observe the fourteenth day of the Passover according to the gospel, deviating in no respect, but following the rule of faith. And I also, Polycrates, the least of you all, do according to the tradition of my relatives, some of whom I have closely followed. For seven of my relatives were bishops, and I am the eighth. And my relatives always observed the day when the people put away the leaven. I, therefore, brethren, who have lived sixty-five years in the Lord, have met with the brethren throughout the world, and have gone through every holy scripture, am not affrighted by these terrifying words. For those greater I have said, we ought to obey God rather than man. I could mention the bishops who were present, who I summoned at your desire, whose names, should I write them, would constitute a great multitude, and they, beholding my littleness, gave their consent to the letter, knowing that I did not bear my gray hairs in vain, but had always governed my life by the Lord Jesus. Basically what he's saying is all of these great theologians from the Eastern Church, they all celebrated Easter on the 14th day of Nisan rather than on the Sunday. And that if they change their minds now, they're basically excommunicating all of those people and what will happen to them at the resurrection. He's not buying it. He's not into that. He's like, we, we must respect these fantastic, long-standing, huge, huge theologians. I love how this man has never heard of grandfathering things in. No, he's, he's totally not for grandfathering things in. He is like, I, and you can tell he definitely wants to be one of these grand theologians. Because he's like, I, Polycrates, the least of you all. Like he's doing the whole... Humble thing. I love it. So, they're not budging. Once again, we have a total stalemate in the church, and literally nothing has been accomplished other than to reaffirm each group to their position, because now they, they've done the research, they've looked into it, they feel very strongly that they're making the right decision. 
They've thought about what they're doing. They're not just doing it to follow a pattern. They've thought about it. And this is not at all what Victor wanted. He wanted a decision to be made and conformity to be followed. Since he was the Bishop of Rome, Patriarch of the West, and the Western bishops had unanimously agreed with his position, he decides it is now the time to require that all Christians, East and West, celebrate Easter on the Sunday, and he orders all of the Eastern bishops to change their customs effective immediately. I'm sure that goes well. It goes so well. All Many of the Eastern bishops are refusing, and they're going, no, I don't think that's a good idea. So Victor severs ties between them and excommunicates the leaders, including Polycrates. <laughs> Number three, first major official split between the church communities of East and West. Goodbye. So what a precedent this sets. Not a good thing. But he's, he's definitely leaving his mark on history so far. Yeah. So, clearly, positively scandalizes Christendom. Irenaeus, our great source, who as a Western bishop had actually agreed with Victor, still thought he was going way, way too far and wrote him a letter asking him to chill out. Hakuna Yurtatus. He advises Victor that the Eastern bishops were only following their own apostolic tradition and that going through with the breaking of the church would put significant and valuable Christian theologians like Polycrates and Polycarp on the wrong side of the church canon. Was the venerable and deceased Polycarp to be excommunicated post-mortem since he'd been on the side of the Quartadecimans? Why can't we just grandfather people in? Well, this is this is what Irenaeus is saying. Is it really that big of a deal? Like, do we need to excommunicate these people? And he reminds Victor that other popes had dealt with this issue and none of them had been this harsh. They hadn't solved anything, but now it's like, whoa, this is not, this is, you're going way too far. And in the end, Considering that the threat of excommunication wasn't actually forcing any change, and the, the harshness of it all was being criticized even by the Western bishops that had initially agreed with Victor, he's losing all of his allies. And so he eventually recalls that, lifts the excommunication. But, I mean, the relationship between the West and East Church is not going to recover swiftly at all. And Easter, again, is not at all settled, so... Nobody's made a decision. So he's just, like, made enemies out of people who did not want to be enemies, and now it's all messed up, and it's never going to be the same again. So, fantastic. Good job, Victor. So now, before we wrap up Victor's life, there are a few other bits of heresy and schism that we need to touch on, because that's what happens. First off... When Victor cracked down hard on making sure that Easter was a Sunday in Rome, a Christian called Blastus, who was from the East and had clearly been a part of those quartadecimans, starts actively opposing the Pope in the city. He just comes to the city and is like ringing a bell, yelling. And he actually gains enough followers that this could be considered the first little schism in Rome, but it doesn't actually amount to anything, so... The first real schism actually did become something, and we're almost there. So, this Blastus dude, not so much, but he, he had his moment, for sure. 
Then there's Theodotus of Byzantium, or Theodotus the Leather Seller. Of all the things. Leather selling? Well, now he's decided he's a prophet. He's not even a tanner. He just sells it. Well, I, I didn't say it, but it is leather seller slash tanner. Okay, I was going to say, like, no, someone else does all the work and all the gross part with the urine. He just sells it. It depends on what translation you read. Some of them just say leather seller, so could be. Capitalism. This dude, who either sells or tans leather, comes to Rome and starts preaching what will become known as adoptionism or dynamic monarchianism. And this is a theology where it's argued that Christ was not an incarnation of God. He was just a man. At first. And then what? They argue that it's not until his baptism by John the Baptist that Jesus gets filled with the Holy Ghost and becomes Christ. So basically, they felt that up until the point of the baptism, he was just a dude. It's only at that point that he's filled with the Holy Ghost. And not only that, but this still didn't make Jesus God. Jesus wouldn't be God until he gets resurrected. Okay. So he's like some sort of weird butterfly. I was thinking like Pokemon, but yeah, that works too. <laughs> That's the worst evolution. I guess it's kind of Magikarpy. Like he's just this useless dude and then he turns into something more useful and then he's God. Exactly. He's hit his max evolution. What does that make John the Baptist? Is he magic? Just some dude who... Would he be the Pokemon trainer? <laughs> He's the Ash in this situation. Who's going to be the best there ever was. And since he evolved when he was baptized, I guess that makes him a water Pokemon. Unlike Montanism, which the church had a pretty hard time disavowing, like we talked about last week, because... It was a good Christian lifestyle practice. The adoptionists are pretty much cut and dry heresy for the church. Adoptionism is no good and they do not like Pokemon. So they're, they're one of those schools that ban Pokemon cards. Like when, when you were in elementary school and you couldn't play Pokemon cards anymore. That is Victor. I was in middle school. Oh, yes. I'm older than you. Well, I was in elementary school when that happened. Eighth grade, man. Victor has Theodotus excommunicated from the church, but he doesn't go away, and he starts to amass some followers, which are going to be problematic in a little while, so. And as we know, heresy doesn't just hit the lay people, as we saw with Cherto and Valentine. It's the fan. And it's popping up in the church. So, there is a Roman priest who had spent time under Polycarp in the East, and he starts to lean into Valentinianism at this time under Victor's papacy. But this guy, Florinus, it doesn't seem that he was being paid attention to at all by Victor, because he doesn't catch that Florinus is doing this in the church, and he doesn't deal with these new ideas, because we have Irenaeus writing to Victor to tell him, Hey, this dude! You need to take care of him. He's doing things that are not okay in the church. So Irenaeus is like telling Victor to stop dropping the ball. Pay attention. And unfortunately, we don't really know what happened with Florinus. Either Victor expelled him from the church or just prevented him from being a priest. Eusebius makes it a little unclear which one it is. So either way, 
it is a bad time for being inside the church. It's a good time to be a Christian because you're not dying horribly, but it's a bad time if you're part of keeping everyone together. And then Victor dies in 199 in Rome. And for once, we can say that year with relative confidence because it's cited regularly and often. But we can't say how he died with any confidence because one site I read says he was martyred when Emperor Severus began to change his tune, but that seems unlikely. And it's likely that he's been called a martyr out of that convention, not out of reality. And he's buried on Vatican Hill. That's Victor. Let's see how he does when we raid him. Papatum infallium. He is making his mark in the church, undeniably so. He is the, the first Latin writing. That is huge. Official language of the church. First major split between the church in this way. Horrible, horrible precedent for that. Not a good time. Um, he's not successful in that when he makes the split, he doesn't actually do anything that is going to be successful and last because nobody actually accepts his po his actual policy. So that is not good. He's leaving a pretty substantial mark on the church. It's not all good, though. The only thing we could say that's really good, that he has an impact as a pope, is he's freeing the condemned Christians and Latin with the other pieces being all zealous, what do you want to give him? I want to give him, like, a seven. Okay. Because, okay, like, I remember specifically my grandmother, Grandma Dot, she would search out Latin masses and go to, like, the most inopportune time and the most inopportune drive to go to Latin mass. So it has definitely affected my life. Definitely. So we can give him a little bit of a score for Secularis Impactum then, too. Um, yeah, these, these are big precedents. These are, the, the Latin is huge. Uh, freeing, freeing the Christians in Sardinia, having a good relationship with the imperial court. These are all big, big things. So I've got to give him a good score. I'm going to match your seven but then I'm going to take away three for the massive split in the church not being a good thing. So I'm going to give him a total of four. That'll give him 11. Fructus prohibitum. Tell me the story. We're going to cover the, the main points first. He's known for his fiery personality. He's obstinate. He's excessive. He's extreme. The first major split of the church. This is where he's going to get those points back for it. I'm going to give him the three for the split in the church. He's literally having his own bishops tell him to chill out. And then we have this article that I came across that I'm going to read you, or at least I'm going to tell you bits and pieces of it. It is called The Wicked Pope, Pontifex Victor by James Donahue. And the sources that he uses for this article are from a site called oneevil.org. What conspiracy theory did you come across? Oh, just you wait. <laughs> but I have to point this out because, um, in the gentlest of terms, let's call this not academically scrupulous. The first thing I have here is the Roman Catholic Church beatified Pope Pontifex Victor 
and Pope Benedict XVI declared him a saint in the presentation to the Roman Curia on December 12, 2012. Hey, it's a date! It's a date! That's not necessarily an accurate date, but... If church teachings are correct, the act probably yanked Pope Victor from the fires of hell by declaring that all sins and evil acts performed forgiven. And that is because Victor turned out to be among the lineup of extremely wicked men. So that is the opening line. Wow. Basically, what this article was arguing is that Christianity was not actually Christianity after the life of Jesus but was actually a cult of Paulinity, so a cult to Paul, up until the time of Victor, and that at the time of Victor, quote, it was said that tens of thousands were murdered to enforce, enforce Victor's struggle to head the one church, but that church was dedicated to blood sacrifice, demonology, and power. This is the uh, yang to Anicetus's I love you, you're so chaste and pure, man. This is exactly the opposite of Father Francis. It goes on, and I quote, In his version, Pope Victor was born Gaius Fulvius in the year 126 in the old Phoenician city of Neapolis in a territory now no located in Libya, North Africa. The family was forced out of Rome after Emperor Domitian declared human sacrifice a capital crime. Victor's father, Fulvius Pius, belonged to a wealthy and distinguished ancient family who was involved in Paulinity. The cult went underground, became resentful and hateful to the new church. Then Septimius lifts the ban on the cult and grants the future Victor the Temple of Sibyl on the Vatican Hill. It's not a church. It's been granted by Emperor Septimius Severus as a temple of Sibyl to the church and that Instead of looking for Easter uniformity, he's just demanding that everyone recognize him as a supreme authority instead of introducing anything of value as far as liturgy goes. The new Latin documents were a new doctrine for the cult that Victor was instrumental in bringing back child sacrifice into church ri ritual weekly and that he demanded new liturgy for ritual incest. And that the next pope, Zephyrinus, was his son. Okay, that's some wild accusations. And the last line of this article is, It is unclear from church-written history if the slaughter of the believers continued under Zephyrinus, who enjoyed a 17-year pontificate. We have the real, actual, fructus prohibitum stuff, splitting with the church, his bishops telling him to chill out, and then we have, like, baby murder and human sacrifice and incest. That man just had an agenda. Oh my god, and it's written so poorly. Like, that's what I could pull out of there in any type of clarity. So if it felt like I was jumping all over the place, that's because that's what the article does. So, honestly, I don't think we can actually give him any points for that. But it was a ripping yarn of a read for sure. And I looked into this in deep, deep detail. There is... No suggestion that Zephyrinus, the future pope, had any, any familial ties to Victor. Like, this is so not true. They were born in completely different places. It, it just, no, not likely. It's, but their ages aren't that far apart. It's just, it's weird. What do you actually want to give him for this category? How about, like, a two? 
You're going to give him a two for splitting the church? Well, I mean, they're only kind of split. He got mad and he excommunicated them and then he went, never mind. But that relationship doesn't quite ever recover. So if you want to give him a two, I'm going to give him a five. Okay. And then that'll give him a seven because I think that that's more accurately reflecting that 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 is a big deal. Yeah, I mean, the Eastern Orthodox Church is the Eastern Orthodox Church. It's there. It's not part of the Catholic Church. And this is where that starts. So, yeah, not good. Seculari impactum. For me, this one comes down to an argument, like you said, about Latin. It is the dominant language of the church, so this is going to have far-reaching consequences for the whole world. Like, I know many, many people who had to take Latin in school specifically because of this. So it is going to have a secular impact for a very, very long time. Probably, uh, when did they change it, like... Change it from the church? Well, like, when did they say, oh, it doesn't need to always be in Latin anymore? Was that, um, Vatican II, or was that before then? It was definitely after the Reformation. I'm not... It's probably a Vatican II thing, because that definitely seems like that pope i can't say that for sure that is something that i'll look into if you if you already know the answer feel free to message us but i'll I'll get there it seems about right so that's a long history for this I, he's got to get some points with that in mind what do you want to give him for the latin i already gave him some points for latin so let's give him a let's give him a two again okay i'm gonna give him a four because that's a pretty big one and that gives him a six overall for Secularis Impactum. Facium Sanctus. FaceTime. Show me his face. I will show you. It is a face. He definitely, I'm surprised there isn't a written description of the way they look, that the way he looks, because they clearly were going for a motif between these two pictures. Okay. Here we go. Oh my gosh. Look at, he's got like a bass mouth. He does. And the the word that comes to mind when I see this photo is squatty. He's kind of like short and squished and thick and kind of just a square. He does look disproportional. I'm going to, even though we haven't rated it yet, I'm going to send you the other one just because they're so consistent in the squattiness. Yeah, he's also very short here. Maybe he was just short. He could have been short. And someone asked me if we were going to talk about short-heighted popes. So there you go. We don't know what his height is. He may be taller than us. Same height, same height. He could be. I'm I'm thinking he's got to be taller than us. You and I are like pixie people. We can assume he's taller than us. Even even with the whole Roman thing about them being much shorter in this time period, like Jordan would have been considered a very average to tall Roman man. Oh, I can't even imagine John. John would be some sort of giant. With that, um, his overall look is kind of squatty. It's unique. He's got this real frowny face. It's a bass face. He's going to get a couple points for his bass face. Someone Photoshop him onto one of those talking fishes. Oh, that would be amazing. Do that for me, the internet. What do you want to give his bass face? He looks so tired. He does look tired. He looks like he's made himself a mess, which he has. He did it to himself. I'm just going to give him a two. Let's round it out. Yeah, that's what I was going to give him two. So that gives him a score of one for Facium Sanctus. Tempus Pontificus. This one's easy. 
189 to 199. So, 10 years. Um, we have some specific dates. We There is some debate, like Eusebius says he began in the 10th year of Commodus, which would be 189, and Lipsicius agrees, but Jerome says in the reign of Pertinax or Septimius Severus, like 193, doesn't quite work. There's there's one source that even gives us specific enough dates that says the 26th of May, 189, to the 28th of July, 199, 10 years, 63 days. That's very specific. It is, and don't know where they got that, so score of 2.5. All right, everybody, it's the canon bonus round! Do, 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 do. Is he a saint? Yes, he's a saint. Of course. His feast day is, is July 28th. It's pretty much it. He is not a patron saint of anything. It's the singing bass fish. I was thinking, like, human sacrifice, because clearly that's what he was into. But we could go with singing bass fish. What are, what are they actually called? I think we need oh, to give God. it, like, the proper name. Let me Google it. Singing bass fish. Big Mouth Billy Bass. There we go. What a dumb name. He's the patron saint of Big Mouth Billy Basses. <laughs> What is the plural for bass? Is it just bass? <laughs> it might be. I don't fish. I can't believe that this is a question that I have to ask in my life. Bass is basses. Well, then he's definitely the patron saint of big mouth Billy Basses. Because why not? Okay. Now, with that in mind, let's look at his total score. Which is a respectable 28.5. He's had some good scandaly bits to bring him up there. He's in third place. That's wild. Whoa. But I, that feels right because some of that scandaly stuff and the impacts, he's got, you know, that works for me. He looks obstinate. Yep, I'm into it. So now we got to ask ourselves, is he papally enough? Is he pizzazzy enough? Does he have enough personality to be worthy of a papal bull? He didn't do it for me. I don't want to give it to him. You don't want to give it? Oh, see, I was thinking he was going to get it from you. I'm, I'm tempted to give it to him. He's got a pretty lasting impact. He's the first African pope. He is the first pope to write in Latin. He is the first pope to split up the church. These are, I don't know. I mean, they're important things, but nothing about him screams, like, excitement to me. Okay, you're not excited by him. Now, are you, like, 100% not excited by him, or are you enough that we can go to a dice roll, or should we just give it a no? How do you feel? How strongly do you feel about your no? Oh, God, how strong, um... Because I'll back you up. If you, if you feel that strongly, I will relent my yes. But if you're not 100% sure, we can go to Divine Intervention. He doesn't excite me, but also he did a ton of stuff. Uh, let's just dice roll. For anybody who hasn't listened to an episode where we've done this yet, which I think is only one, we have Divine Intervention to intercede here in the form of a d20. So if he rolls a 1 to a 10, he goes straight to Purgatory, and an 11 to 20... He gets it, so let's see what happens. All right. I got a 10. Oh, just not enough. Mm, I think that's right. Not by the skin of your teeth, 
uh, you're not making it. So that is a no for Victor. That's, I'm okay with that. That, that works for me. That's fine. I think that was just what needed to happen there. So that brings us to our thank you portion. Thank you, Connie, from the ghost host for giving me, me that D20. Yes, yes. Actually, the ghost hosts have been very, very responsive to us this week and telling us all sorts of fun things that they like about our episodes. So that's cool. Thank you, ghost hosts. Thank you to everyone who has left us a five-star review. Those are super, super, super helpful. And if you haven't, now is a great time. Super, super great time. And thank you to everyone who has listened. And this is our episode recording after we have hit 20,000 downloads. And that's amazing. So crazy. We love you all. You guys are awesome. Thank you to everybody who's tweeting about us. Actually, we need to thank specifically on Twitter, BandMom1977. You are helping us get out there so much, and we really, really appreciate it. So thank you very much. You can find us on Twitter and Facebook at PontifexPod. You can also email us at PontifexPod at gmail.com. We also have a new thing. We have a Patreon now. You can find us on Patreon at patreon.com forward slash pontifaxpod. And you can get some pretty cool tiers of stuff there. We just are going to keep adding and adding content to that site as we go along. So get in early. You, If you don't feel like using Patreon, you can also PayPal donate to us. We have a PayPal me. That is paypal.me forward slash pontifaxpod as well. We're pontifaxpod everywhere. Yeah, it's very easy to try to find us. Exactly. So with that, I guess we say thank you and goodbye. Goodbye. Ciao.